Good morning. It's good to be back at Westridge. See all you guys again. Uh, we just finished, my wife and I, and our sons finished a seven-year stint in the country of Haiti. So we walked in this morning, and I told my, he said, I said to my son, you feel that? It's called air conditioning. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. It's not that tough down there. But uh, it's good to be back in the land of air conditioning, good music, thanks to the band. Uh, yeah. So uh, since, um, since I'm here, I just wanted to be able to say to some of you personally, thanks very much uh, for walking with us in the journey that we were, that we, we were in there in Haiti. Uh, some of you literally walked with us, came down and walked and worked alongside us in some of the groups and teams that came to visit. Some of you supported financially and prayed for us and took care of us when we were here uh, visiting. So... Thanks very much for your participation in that. It's, it's good to be home and um, to be with you guys here today. So uh, today I want, to, um, I want to start off with a couple of stories and then uh, have one, one main point. So um, the first story that I want to share is one from a man named Gregorio Lopez Fuentes. And uh, the, name, the name of the story is A Letter to God, one of my favorites. And it's, it's set back in Mexico many years ago. And as the story begins, um, the, the young farmer that the story's about, named Lencho, is standing in the doorway of his small house out in rural Mexico overlooking his fields. And as he's looking, he sees ripe cornfields, he sees flowering kidney beans, and he's loving what he sees. I mean, things look good with his crops and in his field, but the only thing missing is some rain. And he's hoping desperately that there's going to be a little bit of rain to bring that final bit of moisture as he gets ready for harvest. So as he's looking out, he's, he's scanning the northeast sky, looking for clouds, hoping he'll see something. And when he does, he turns and he tells his wife, uh, he says, woman, I think we're going to get some water tonight. And she says, God willing. And she, she, at that point, calls everybody in to the cabin, their, their house for dinner. And as they're sitting there eating their dinner, uh, it begins to rain. And, of course, uh, Lencho is ecstatic, you know. And when he sees the rain begin to fall, uh, he tells his boys who have been helping him in his fields he tells them those big drops of rain, those are the 10 centavo pieces, and the small ones are the 5 centavo pieces. That's money when that's raining like that out there. So they're enjoying just the thought that their crops are being watered and enjoying their dinner together, when all of a sudden it begins to, a cold wind begins to blow. And the cold wind turns the, the rain from rain to hail. And it begins to fall, and Lencho looks at his wife and he says, man, I hope this passes quickly, but it doesn't pass quickly. As a matter of fact, for a full hour, the hail is just pounding everything. It's pounding his house, it's pounding his garden, it's pounding the cornfield, it's just destroying everything. And when, when it's finally stopped, the ground is just white from the hail. There's not a, not a leaf left on the tree. His corn crop is completely destroyed. His beans are destroyed. He looks at his boys who have been helping him work in the fields, and he says, boys, it's all gone. 
I don't know what hope we have. And that night, as he began just thinking and reflecting, he decided that his only hope was God. So early the next morning, he gets up and he sits down and he begins to, to pen a letter to God. And he says, dear God, he said, you know I need help because all of the crops were destroyed and I need 100 pesos so that I have enough money to re-sow my fields and to have enough money to live on until the next harvest. So after he's written the letter, he walks into town, he puts a stamp on his letter, and he drops it into the mailbox. And just as it falls in, it's a quiet, uh, quiet post office, not much going on, and one of the post office workers goes over and grabs it as soon as it drops in. And when he picks it up, he notices that Lencho has written on the envelope to God. Of course, this post office worker thinks that's the funniest thing in the world, and he's laughing, and he takes it over, and he shows it to the postmaster, and they're laughing together. And then suddenly, the postmaster takes the letter, and he begins to look at it, and he turns serious, and he says, you know, he says, it's funny, but I wish I had faith like this guy. I wish that I believed like he believed. I wish that I had the audacity to actually like start a conversation with God. So the postmaster decides in that moment that he's actually going to answer the letter. And when he opens it up and reads it, he recognizes immediately that it's going to take more than just a pen and paper to respond. But he's up for it. He says to his other employees there in the post office, would you guys be willing to chip in some money to help this guy out? And so they do. They, they put their money together and the postmaster takes some of his own salary and they put all these bills in an envelope and the postmaster takes a piece of paper and at the bottom of it, he just signs God, folds it all up, puts it in the envelope and they wait for Lencho to come back. And a few days later, they see Lencho walking down the street toward the post office and they're all sort of slyly hiding at different places in the post office because they want to watch this encounter and watch what happens. And it's the postmaster himself who takes the envelope and he hands it to Lencho and He's got this kind of satisfaction of knowing uh, he's a guy who's, who's doing a good thing. And he hands the, the, the letter to Lencho, and Lencho walks over, and he moves away from the counter, and he begins to look inside the envelope. And as he's looking, there is not the slightest surprise that there's money in that envelope. But as Lencho begins to count it, they can see that his face turns angry. And Lencho is saying, I know God would not deny me what I need. I know God would not cheat me out of what I actually had to have to make it. So he goes over to the counter at the, at the postmaster and he asks for a, a pen and paper. And he, he goes over to the public writing table and very intently begins to scrawl out another letter. He scrawls out the letter and he folds it up and he buys another stamp and attaches it with a blow of his fist. And he goes over and he drops this letter also into, into the box. And immediately the postmaster runs over because he can't wait to see what this letter says. He opens it up, and the letter from Lencho says, God, he says, you, you knew I needed 100 pesos. Please send me the rest of the money. But don't send it through these post office workers because they're a bunch of crooks. <laughs> Sincerely, Lencho. So the story, it makes you smile because... It could have ended 
in that moment when he's just looking at the money, it would have been a good ending to a story, and you would have thought that's cool that the post office people gave him some money. And, but it's that last twist that makes it a great story because it's this, this coming together of the irrational, really, irrational generosity of the postmaster and his friends and this feeling of feeling cheated by Lencho feeling that he's been cheated by the very people who have given him this generous gift. So this, this, this coming together of these two ideas, to me, makes this story one of those stories with a twist that moves it from, from good to really great. And when I, I think about these kinds of stories, I'm reminded that there's a reason Jesus told stories. Stories are those things that they just... I mean, they dig into your mind and they stay there. If I said Rumpelstiltskin or the Three Little Pigs, everybody in this room knows that story because they just stick. And Jesus told stories because they're memorable and because we can put ourselves in the story and sort of make our own application. So Jesus also tells a story that it's from from Matthew chapter 20 that we're going to look at today. So the second story from Matthew chapter 20 is one of the stories of Jesus that we call a parable. And a parable, the reason that Jesus' stories are called parables is because the word parable means to throw alongside. And what Jesus was doing when he was telling these stories is he was trying to show people in common everyday language about everyday life through a story, tell them about what his kingdom really was, what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, what it meant to be someone who is a part of the kingdom of God. So what Jesus would do is he would throw down a story that was very common and understood by everyone. Simple language, the kind of context that everyone understood. And he also would put next to that the teaching about his kingdom. He says, the kingdom of God is like... And then he would tell a simple story as he does in Matthew 20. And this story is called the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So it's another story about farming. And as Jesus begins this story in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1, he says, there was a landowner who went to, I don't know, I'm going to say the center of town, 5th and Main, and this is where people would wait to be hired. He goes early in the morning because he would find people there to work in his fields And he would hire them for the day. And what he would do is he would give them the going rate, which one day of work would equal one denarius. That's the minimum wage, you could say, in that day. So he agreed to to hire these guys. He takes them to his field, and they begin working. Now, what's interesting is, as soon as Jesus begins telling this story, those first listeners would have immediately thought, wait a minute. Something's not quite right because landowners don't go hire their own people. They have a foreman who does that. So even though this was a common, normal, everyday kind of story, there's a little twist in here that they can see from the beginning that it's not your typical kind of landowner. So this landowner not only hires this group, but at three hours later at nine o'clock in the morning, he goes back to the same place and he hires more people to work in his field. They make an agreement that they're going to work for such and such a price. These guys also go and work in his field. 
So when you get to Matthew chapter 20, verse 5, it says the landowner goes back two more times. So he's gone at 6 and hired the first workers. He's gone at 9. Now he goes at 12, and he goes back again at 3, and he hires more workers from the same place. And it's, it's, it's really remarkable, but he's bringing these guys in just for a small part of the day. But when we get close to the end, and I'm, G, I'm sure Jesus' listeners would have been like shocked and, and just appalled that this is actually happening. But the landowner goes back at 5 p.m., 5 o'clock, one hour before quitting time, and he goes back to the same place, and he sees people still standing there, and he asks them, what are you doing here? They said, no one hired us. We're still waiting to find work. So the landowner says, come and work in my vineyard. So they, they go through this whole process, and all these people have been working, some for a longer time, some for shorter. And when they get to the end of the workday, the landowner calls his foreman. He says, okay, it's time to pay the people. What I want you to do is I want you to line them up in reverse order. So the people who started at 5 p.m., I want you to line them up first and pay them first. So when the 5 p.m. people get to the line, the foreman is giving them the money. The landowner is also watching all this happen. But more importantly, all the other people are watching this happen. Now, the people who started at 5 p.m. and they get a full day's pay, I'm sure they're thinking, man, this is awesome. This guy is extremely generous. I love this. I want to work for this guy every day. But the people, and the farther you move back the line, the more intense it got, the people who had been doing the work longer were feeling angry about this. As a matter of fact, the people who had started at 6 a.m. began grumbling and complaining among themselves, saying, that's, that's not fair. That's not fair because we've been working all through the hottest, hard, hardest part of the day, and they're getting paid the same amount that we did. We worked 12 times longer than those guys. So the landowner hears this and they have a conversation about his money and he explains to them that if he wants to be generous and share his money with other people, it's his right to do. But as Jesus is telling this story, there's, there's a reason that he is changing the story so that the landowner is not the typical landowner. You see, in, in, in a parable... Normally, the main characters represent one person that you or I might connect with, where we can put ourselves in the story. But the landowner is God himself. The landowner represents the one who is the provider and is the giver. And so this landowner is being described by Jesus in a unique way. And the things that Jesus is saying about him doesn't really compute with the people who are listening to the story. They've seen all kinds of people work. Many of them might even have worked in vineyards. But to see a landowner who does what this guy does doesn't make any sense. So specifically, when this landowner, when he goes out early in the morning and he shows up at 5th and Main to hire these guys, landowners didn't do that. That's what you have a foreman for. They would go and do the hiring, but this landowner comes personally, face-to-face, in the flesh, because he wants to hire these guys. He, he cares about who's there doing this work. And when you think of it, I think what Jesus is pointing to is this, that this God, represented by the landowner, 
he's not really like what you might think God is like. This is a God who comes down, who humbles himself and comes down to be with his people. I'm guessing that Jesus might have actually even been talking about himself because when Jesus came to earth, this is God in the flesh. God himself comes face to face with the people that he's calling. So there's, there's a reason, I think, that Jesus is twisting the story and making this landowner something unusual. The second thing is, when this landowner goes back time and time again, he goes at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock, he goes back, that would never, first of all, it would never happen. But secondly, it's like, that would never work. One, one uh, writer that I read suggested that probably what the landowner was doing when he was going back again at 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock, etc., was he was not necessarily looking for workers for his vineyard, but instead he knew that those people who were waiting to be hired needed help, and because of his great compassion and because of, because of his love and his care for those people, he went and he found them and he hired them and he paid them only for their benefit because they needed it. The last thing is Jesus describes this landowner as someone who's grossly unfair because he has completely been unjust and unfair in the way that he has paid his workers. But we have to remember that this, this, is, this is the good kind of injustice. And what I mean by that, it's, it's not fair in a good way. It's not as if this landowner withheld money that he owed to people who had worked in his field. What he had done is he had been extremely generous and he overpaid people that was completely not in accordance with the kind or the amount of work they'd done. So Jesus is pointing out something in this story about God. And you see, once again, there's this, this coming together of a sort of irrational generosity and this feeling of, of feeling cheated. When Jesus tells these stories, he's representing who God is to us. He's describing what kind of God this is and that this is not your typical landowner and this is not your typical God. That this is the kind of God that, that seeks people out. And it's not just in this story where this landowner comes back again and again and again to find people, but you see this thread throughout the stories of Jesus, just like the story of the shepherd and the lost sheep. The shepherd has this relentless passion to rescue, to find and rescue this lost sheep, and he's going to do whatever it takes. That's the kind of description that Jesus is giving of God in this place as landowner. In theology, we call that whole idea grace. That, that coming together of irrational generosity, giving generously, but not just giving generously, but to someone who doesn't deserve it. In theology, we call that grace. And fortunately for you here at, at Westridge, you guys get a steady diet of hearing about the grace of God. And you probably don't understand how fortunate you are that you get to hear the truth of how much God truly loves you unconditionally. 
that, will, that he will relentlessly pursue you and come after you because he loves you. And regardless of what you've done, he loves you and he accepts you and he wants you and he wants you to be in relationship with him. There are so many people, even in churches, that don't really get to hear that truth. But here's the thing. The thing about grace is this. When, when I read my Bible, I know that the story of grace is true, that God loves us and accepts us in spite of what we do. Regardless of what we do, there is still that unconditional love. But I have to say, when I'm reading this Bible and I see all these things that Jesus calls us to do, commands, the things that he tells us to do, I wonder how is it that, how do I put those things together in a meaningful way? Because if God doesn't really care, like what we do doesn't matter, he will accept us anyway, then, I mean, why read this stuff? Why worry about what Jesus says we should do, how we should live? How do those things fit together? Because in reality, it doesn't matter, does it? And the truth is, when I'm reading this, I also know that, that God is not presenting them to us as suggestions. Like, oh, you might want to try this. They're imperatives. Think this is the way you live if you're going to be a Jesus follower. This is how you act. This is what you do. This is a part of the behavior of kingdom people. But in reality, does it matter? Do we care? Do we have to do this stuff? And what if we don't? So that whole idea of obedience, it's one of the things that I struggled with personally for a long time because when I finally understood what grace was, I thought, well, I guess it doesn't matter then what I do. Let me ask you a question. Before we go on, let me, let me just ask this. Do you have someone in your life, someone that you know, that you would do anything for? You know what I mean? Like someone that no matter what they ask, you would do it. No matter what they needed, you would give it, buy it, borrow it, steal it, whatever, because if this person needed it, there is nothing you wouldn't do. You, you, you probably don't have a lot of people, I'm sure, but are there some? I hope you have some people in your life that are like that. I do, and you count on those people, and you love them, and you, you make this decision that with resolve, that you would do anything for them, but normally it's because that person at some point in your past has stepped up and done something or some things or been there for you over a long period of time in a way that nobody else has, and you know there's nothing that could be asked that you wouldn't do, pay, give, whatever the ask may be. You got someone like that in your mind that you would... I think in reality, when we talk about this idea of obedience with respect to what the story of grace tells us, obedience to God is really more like that. This is not the drudgery of saying, okay, well, we have to do it because that's what the rule book says. We have to do it because Jesus said we have to do these things. It's not that kind of obedience 
where we feel required because God said so. This is more the idea that we understand with a gracious, loving God who pursues us relentlessly and has already done everything for us. There's nothing that we wouldn't want to do. As a matter of fact, this moves not just from I would do whatever he asks, but I would even do it before he asked if I knew what he wanted, just like you would for a friend. And I think if we look at obedience in light of that kind of thing, what we will see is a better understanding of how we put together a life of following Jesus and understanding that we don't live in fear and guilt and shame, wondering if we're good enough or if we could be accepted by God. Because we have been, that changes our behavior into a response that says, I'd do anything, no matter what it is, no matter where you call me to go. I would go to hell and back if necessary because I would do anything. So, in the Bible... If you go to Exodus chapter 21, there are some very obscure verses in Exodus chapter 21 verses 5 and 6. And this is a part of the Bible that was given in the Old Testament to a nation, the nation of Israel. And as they came out of slavery and they were going into a new land and they were becoming a new nation, no longer slaves, but they were becoming free God had given them a a covenant, which was included a law code, a list of rules of how you live in the nation of Israel. And when you go to chapter 21, verse 5 and 6, there are some really, they're, they're sort of confusing, disturbing kind of verses because they describe what it means when a slave has finished the time of his serving or her serving and is now free. The master is obligated to set him or her free because his slavery is done or her slavery is done. So what you would do is you would be set free, but this specific text says there might be a time when one of the slaves would say, I don't want to leave my master. I love my master. I want to continue to be in the slave-master relationship. Now, I know that kind of boggles our Western modern minds, but this was truly a law that was written so that if someone wanted to, they could remain in slavery, and there was a technical ceremony that was done to make sure this slave was marked. They would take the slave over by a post. They would take an awl, which is like a sharp screwdriver. They would take the ear of the person who was a slave, and they would take a hammer and poke that all through the ear of the slave, piercing the ear to mark that person as a love slave because that person was no longer a slave by obligation of a legal code. That person was now a slave because he or she had chosen in love to stay with that master and give his or her entire life to serving that master. The only way you could imagine that someone would ever do anything so absurd as choose to stay in slavery is to know that's one unique kind of master. That's not your typical slave master of use, abuse, treat people as animals and tools. 
This is someone who evidently has loved and cared for and provided and protected this person just like he would his own son or daughter. And so this slave says, I still want to be in. That's the kind of God, that's the kind of landowner that Jesus is describing. Every, almost every night, I, I, when I put my boys to bed, I, I still go in. They're 10 and 13 years old, and I, or 11 and 13, and I still go in and lay down on their beds with them and talk to them, and um, they tell me stories about the day or, or not. And uh, we, we pray together, and I started several years ago this tradition of singing a, a song to them. And... Um, it's not because I'm a great singer, because I'm not, but I, I wanted to just sing something and kind of have a tradition. And so I started singing this song. And the thing is, is I, I kept singing the same, same song, night after night after night. And, and finally, you know, my boys, they were, they were pretty compliant and went along with it. But finally, it's like, Dad, come on, you know, the eye roll, eye roll thing. And I understood why, but I didn't stop. I didn't stop. And this, this song that I sang was this simple little tune that I learned years ago, and it just says, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. See why I didn't sing to him? So he, he, he this, this idea that God loves us in such an incredible way is what I wanted my boys to know. I, I wanted them, even if they got sick of hearing it, I wanted them to have embedded in their mind that God is good and that he loves them. And he's the kind of God who will relentlessly pursue them and show unconditional love and that no matter what they do, they will be loved so that when they're trying to figure out what do I do, how do I live, what am I responsible or obligated for, that it won't be so difficult to figure out this whole idea of obedience because you're talking about giving your life back to someone who has given more than we can even imagine. I think if I could wrap up everything that I think I wish I had learned earlier in life, I wish that someone a long time ago had explained to me this idea of what grace really is and how this idea of obedience fits with it. Because when I did understand the idea of grace, and I'm reading in my Bible and I get to the words obedience and obey and do this and don't do this, I was confused. Honestly, it felt a lot like this bait and switch. Like, oh yeah, they get you in. Like, salvation is free, come on in. And by the way, here's the rule book. And I hated that feeling and I hated that whole thing. Like, so I thought I didn't have to do anything for God to love me. And you don't, but the doing is the kind of response that I wanted my boys to know and understand forever. So here's what I would say to you. If I were going to wrap this up in a nutshell, I'd say this. When you're reading this book, know that this is not a rule book, but a love story. 